Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Mershon Center. Uh, this is really a big crowd. It's wonderful to have uh, everybody here. I can hear Mark Lynch speak. Um, uh, I'm pleased to introduce Mark Lynch, Associate Professor of Political Science and International Affairs and Director of the Institute for Middle East Studies at George Washington University. Uh, Professor Lynch publishes frequently on the politics of the Middle East. His work has gained a wide following among Middle East policy professionals, journalists, and academics. He focuses particularly on the era of media and information technology, Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, and Islamic uh, movements. Indeed, he coined the phrase public sphere, Arab public sphere, uh, as applied to uh, the Middle East. Uh, Lynch is author of Voices of the New Arab Public, Al Jazeera, Iraq, and Middle East Politics Today, uh, which was selected as a choice outstanding academic book, and writes an influential Middle East blog for foreignpolicy.com, where he serves as editor of the Middle East Channel. Uh, Mark graduated with a BA from Duke University and received his MA and PhD in government from Cornell University. He has received substantial grants from the Carnegie Corporation, Social Science Research Council, the United States Institute for Peace, and the U.S. Department of Education. And today, as part of our Islam and Democracy series, Professor Lynch will present the topic of his latest book, uh, a book which is available out there after the lecture, just published a month or so ago. Um, the Arab Uprising, the Unfinished Revolutions of the New Middle East. Please join me in welcoming Mark Lynch. This is volume control. Okay. It seems to be doing all right. <clears throat> Anybody tell me if my volume's not good? I'm sure someone will let me know. All right, well, thanks, Bill. And it's really great uh, to see so many of you here today uh, to talk about uh, the, uh, the Arab Uprising. Uh, so the book that just came out uh, was one which in some ways was written extremely quickly in response to uh, these amazing events which have swept through the region. Um, but in other ways, it's been a long developing book which is about trying to track what I think are some pretty substantial and fundamental structural changes in the nature of Arab politics, which have been, excuse me, which have been developing for quite some time. The, um, you know, you try to figure out what actually even to title the book, and often there are some, some assumptions that are worked into those titles. So, for example, a lot of people like to talk about Arab revolutions, but I don't like that because we haven't actually had any revolutions yet, with the possible exception of Tunisia. Uh, a lot of people like to talk about the, the so-called Arab awakening, but I don't like that because from where I stand, the Arabs weren't sleeping. Uh, actually, what we saw in 2010 and 2011 was much more something where people who had been struggling and striving and mobilizing in a whole variety of creative and increasingly effective ways for at least a decade finally broke through. And so there was something genuinely novel about what happened in, uh, the, at the end of 2010 and the beginning of 2011. But it wasn't that uh, you had a previously passive Arab population which suddenly began to challenge their rulers. Um, I chose the Arab Uprising as my title because I think it captures two things which are fundamental about it. One, the mass mobilization. And secondly, the fact that there was something distinctively and uniquely Arab about it in the sense of a common identity which linked together a whole series of what might otherwise have been uh, unrelated or uh, you know, discrete events. Um, and so basically, 
you know, one of, my, one of the things that I'm actually a bit ashamed of is that I seem to have coined uh, the term Arab Spring. Uh, for this. It wasn't something I did on purpose. I meant it somewhat ironically, but uh, the editors of Foreign Policy went back and they wanted to find out who invented it, and they did a whole bunch of Google and LexisNexis searches, and they found out that, uh, that, that it was actually me uh, on their own pages, which I suppose was self-serving uh, for them to, uh, to notice that. But, you know, but I disavowed that because Arab Spring also, like Arab Awakening, has this, uh, you know, this uh, connotation of something brand new. But also, you know, the thing happened in January, which isn't the spring, and by my reckoning actually ended in March, before the spring. And the reason I bring up this thing about the Arab Spring is because I think there actually was something discreet and unique, which at this point I'm happy to call the Arab Spring, to demarcate it from the more broader, more structural changes in the region. The Arab Spring, I would say, went from about December 15th of 2010 until about the middle of March in 2011. And it had a number of distinctive characteristics. And, as, and what I'm going to do is kind of tell you what those distinct characteristics are, explain how each of those have been developing for at least a decade and weren't new at all, and then explain how it ended. And I would say the unique characteristics of this Arab Spring are, number one, the, the, the level of mobilization and popular mobilization. What was really unique about what happened in, um, in uh, especially across, in uh, January of 2011 onward, was that you saw, for the, you saw the genuine uh, spread of contentious politics deep into sectors and communities which previously had not been mobilized. Now, there had been, as I, as I mentioned before, a growing wave of mobilization, contentious action, and political uh, struggle, contentious political struggle, over the previous decade. And you saw this developing across the region. Uh, I would actually go back and date the origin, the, the origin of this uh, wave of mobilization back to uh, the, Israeli, the Israeli invasion of the West, uh, the, the war between uh, Israel and the Palestinians which broke out in September of 2000, and especially the Israeli reoccupation of the West Bank in 2002, which saw hundreds of thousands of Arabs coming out into the streets in mass numbers uh, across many parts of the Arab world. Um, this continued in the protests against the American invasion of Iraq, it then continued in, in the, uh, the, the turn inward in places like Egypt, Kuwait, Jordan, a number of North African countries where you saw the same activists, the same mobilized youth uh, uh, bloggers, um, labor union activists, uh, workers activists and the like, turning their protest inward, going out into the streets. In 2005 in Lebanon, you had something like a sixth of the population in the streets protesting after the assassination of Rafiq Hariri. In 2006, you had, again, hundreds of thousands, approaching millions of Arabs in the streets protesting over Israel's war with Lebanon. And again, you can trace this all the way through. Significant numbers of people, activists out there in the streets. These activists, uh, for the most part, represented a fairly discreet and interesting group of people who experimented and developed an, an enormously creative and effective uh, style of protest in, in environments which were not particularly hospitable to such protest. Um, many of them were these kind of the, the, these wired youth, but many of them were also just ordinary, uh, ordinary kinds of uh, of workers, of young people, disenfranchised youth, a whole variety of individuals who increasingly were coming together in these 
fairly non-ideological coalitions. Um, you, you would see, for example, in the Egyptian Kafaya movement, which emerges in 2004 and 2005, these very interesting groups of people, maybe a few hundred people, who would come out with uh, you know, a few members of, young members of the Muslim Brotherhood, a few young revolutionary socialists, university professors, um, just kind of ordinary you know, activist types. They would come together in very small numbers, but they would try and find ways. They would try and find the seams in, uh, in the control exercised by authoritarian states. This is something, and, I, and this, I'm, I'm not going to uh, uh, belabor this point, but it's important to recognize that this had been developing over the course of a decade. But there was something new in January of 2011, and that was that this group of activists managed for the first time to form effective linkages out into broader mass publics. And in, instead of having 5,000 creative, dedicated, hardened, and experienced activists on the streets, suddenly you had a million. And that is important. The ability, at least temporarily, for the activists to mobilize large numbers in the streets. Now, whether they were leading it or not is kind of an interesting question. I'll, I'll come back to this in a moment, but uh, one, of, one of the most um, interesting interviews that I had was with a, uh, a wonderful veteran uh, activist in Alexandria, Egypt. And she describes how on January 25th, she and her band of 100 hardy protest leaders and activists went out into the streets, banging on uh, uh, garbage cans, uh, walking through the streets saying, come down, join us, join us, which they had been doing for the last 10 years. And then they look behind them, and they're like, whoa, there's people behind us. Where did that, that's never happened before. And they're like, we're doing it. We're leading a revolution. So they hastily consult with each other, and they say, okay, what do we do now? And they're like, let's march on the police station. So they said, come on, everybody, turn left and go to the police station. But in Alexandria, the obvious natural convergence place for protest is the corniche, the, the, the beachfront. And so the activist leaders turn left, and 100,000 people keep marching right on straight, right down to the ocean. Were they leading it? Or did they simply spark something which had a life of its own? Really interesting question, to which I'll return uh, later in my talk. The first thing then was that made the Arab Spring unique was not then the existence of activists. That had been happening for 10 years, but it was the ability of the activists to bring those millions out into the street. That was new. That's something which they had not been able to do. And by the way, it wasn't that uh, Hosni Mubarak or, or Ben Ali were taken by surprise by the activists. They were ready for the activists. They had security forces deployed. They had all of their usual things in place to prevent protests. And if it had been 5,000 people, they would have won, hands down, no questions asked. They were simply overwhelmed by the hundreds of thousands. And that's, the, that's a crucial difference. The second thing which was unique to the Arab Spring, and I think made it something which was a distinct uh, moment in Arab history, was the unification of Arab political space. There was an enormously unified Arab political and social arena in those months, of, in, the, in the opening months of last year. Now, this was something which you know, we've kind of lost a sense of now, for reasons I'll explain in a few minutes, but this was something which was 
overpowering in its own way. The sense that, there, that, that Arabs were involved not simply in a series of discrete local struggles, but in a common struggle, one which was unified around this theme of Arabs, chal Arabs challenging their leaders, not Yemenis challenging their leaders, Tunisians challenging their leaders, and the like. This is, this is fascinating because you could see this developing in real time. You would see, for example, Yemeni protesters who were self-consciously modeling themselves after Tunisian protesters, chanting the exact same slogans, holding up the exact same banners. And when the Tunisians broke through and seized the streets, you would see a surge of protest activity by Yemenis. Now, I'm sure everyone here you know, is familiar with the Middle East a bit. And you know, Yemen is on the farthest easternmost part of the Arab world. Tunisia on the farthest westernmost part of the Arab world. One is in North Africa. One is at the, at the tip of the, of the Gulf of the Arabian Peninsula. Their dialects are different. Their political histories are different. Uh, they have almost no trade relations, political relations, social relations. They have nothing in common with each other other than their self-identification as part of this common Arab narrative, this common Arab struggle. The fact that Yemenis were clearly, manifestly, and undeniably modeling themselves and being inspired, not just mentally, but behaviorally, by things happening on the farther side of the Arab world is something which is unique. Now bring these two things together, and I would say that for me, the, the archetypical image of the Arab Spring the single thing which, meet, which, which most captures this was something which was a common feature on the, uh, the satellite television station Al Jazeera at the time. I'm, I'm sure some of you will remember this well. And that was a, a five-way split screen. This five-way split screen image, live coverage, in which they would show five different marches in five different cities simultaneously protesting. Often, they would be able to capture them all chanting the same slogan at the same time. Al-Shab, Yurid, Iskab, Al-Nizam. The people want to overthrow the regime. Just imagine that, right? Five different cities separated by thousands of miles, all chanting the same slogans at the same time, and, of course, watching themselves on Al Jazeera doing it. And then Al Jazeera would do that magical CNBC flip screen and show you five different cities and the same thing happening. This is extremely important, that, what, that this was united in this sense of a single Arab struggle, not a series of discrete local struggles. Now, again, this was not new. This was, Bill mentioned uh, the, the book that I wrote and published in 2006, Voices of the New Arab Public. And this was one of the main arguments I developed at the time, which you could see this happening, the unification or the emergence of this Arab public sphere. One in which Arabs were re-articulating and developing a new form of pan-Arabism, a new form of identification from below, one which was very clearly united by this sense of a common popular struggle. And the big themes of that struggle were, as you'd expect, uh, support for the Palestinians, great deal of uh, hostility to the American occupation of Iraq. But the third big thing that you saw on Al Jazeera in those days was this very strong, uh, critical, uh, this critical impulse, this call for reform, and this sense of the pervasive authoritarianism and pervasive failure of the political, economic, and social systems of the Arab world. And so in a sense, you saw both the, the drive for reform and the unification of Arab political identity and political space 
evolving over that same decade through the vehicle of Al Jazeera and then increasingly with the internet and social media layered on top of the broadcast media. This had been developing for a year, I'm sorry, for a decade. And I think it all came together in January of 2011. The third thing which was extremely important was a, a generic psychological shift which took place collectively across almost the entire Arab world in the way for I think the reasons should be obvious. And that was a sense that up until December of 2010, even though there was, as I said, this very strong uh, undercurrent of protest and challenge, there was also a general sense of hopelessness in a sense that fundamental change was impossible. And that even the Kafaya movement, the protesters, the April 6th movement, across the region there was a general sense that challenge was taking place within a fixed political system. So they wanted to force Hosni Mubarak to change in Egypt. They didn't think that getting rid of Hosni Mubarak was even on the table. They wanted to bring about political reforms they wanted to bring about an opening of political space, more transparency, more accountability, that sort of thing, um, better foreign policies. But the idea that actual change, that these leaders could actually be changed, was really not something which was even imaginable. You have to remember, in these youth populations, where you have population pyramids where the vast majority, uh, not pluralities, but majorities of these populations were under the age of 30, in almost every one of these countries, you've had the same individual human being in control since 1970. Um, and if not, that's, if not, the same regime. And the idea of change is very difficult to imagine when your entire life has been lived under the command of the same person. So change was not seen as possible. When Ben Ali falls, in the beginning of January, January 10th, I believe, 2011, that psychological condition changes, I would say, from impossible to possible. And across the entire Arab region, in real time, you get this enormously interesting debate unfolding on the streets, in the cafes, in social media, on TV, in the op-ed pages. Everybody is, are, is asking, can we be next? Can we do what the Tunisians did? Now, of course, every government has its spokesmen flooding those same media spaces, saying, no, 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 we're different. Egypt's not Tunisia. Egypt's bigger. Jordan's not Tunisia. Jordan has a king. Saudi Arabia's not Tunisia. Saudi Arabia is the custodian of the holy places. Syria's not Tunisia. We have a resistance uh, identity, and people love the fact that we challenge Israel. Everybody had a reason. If you, were on, if you were on the throne, you had a reason why your country was not Egypt. But among, popular, um, among the publics, Almost everybody was answering that question, yes. P change is possible. And in this period between the fall of Ben Ali and the outbreak of the Egyptian Revolution on January 25th, it's kind of like this phony war. You know, nothing's really moving on the ground yet, but everybody is now debating the possibility of change. When Hosni Mubarak falls uh, on February 11th, um, that shifts from possibility to inevitability. And the entire region is consumed with the sense that change is now inevitable, that dictators cannot survive, and that publics will ultimately prevail. 
And that is an enormously powerful emotional sense. The momentum of this belief that, as you probably heard President Obama say, there's a single right side of history, the people are on it, the regimes are on the other side, and that it's not just that change is possible, it's inevitable. I did a radio spot uh, on NPR, uh, This American Life, where we were joking about the so-called seven stages of dictator denialism or something like that, the Arab Dictator's Handbook. Every leader gives the same three speeches. The people love me. I can change. I'm not going anywhere. And then they're gone. <laughs> and, but this was widely believed on the streets that when Bashar al-Assad gave his first speech, Everybody said, aha, speech number one, because of this assumption of the inevitability. Again, this doesn't last long. I would argue this only lasts until the middle of March. But you have this month or so where you have this sense of the inevitability of victory, inevitability of change. This is an emotional thing um, uh, for, uh, for my IR theorist friends in the back row. I could give you either a constructivist or a rationalist reading of this based on either expectations or emotions. I'd be happy to do so. But the fact is that there was a very clear change in the way people approached the sense of political reality. And crucially, this was region-wide, not country-specific. The fourth big thing about this Arab Spring was the nonviolence. Now we have to be careful what we mean by nonviolence because none of these protests, none of these um, revolutions were truly peaceful in the sense like everybody you know, put flowers into people's guns and they all sang songs and everything. A thousand people were killed in Egypt in a few days. Uh, every police station in Alexandria was burned to the ground. Um, this was not peaceful in that sense. You could look at the rubble and the wreckage of burnt out cars in Tunis and you'd say, well, that doesn't look very peaceful to me. It looks like an urban riot. But what you didn't get was governments or regimes deploying their full military power against protesters. And this is one of the great crucial things about this phase of, the, of what I'm calling the Arab Spring here. When Tunisian protesters broke through the cordon around Sidi Bouzid and flooded the streets of the major cities and hundreds of thousands took up basically occupation of the main street of, Bour of Bourguiba Street in Tunis, the military could have cleared them. They could have brought in the tanks, brought in the jets, killed 10,000 people and cleared the streets and reestablished authoritarian rule. But General Rashid Omar, one of the great unsung heroes of the Arab Spring, in my opinion, went to Ben Ali and said, I'm not going to do that. We're not a Praetorian guard. We're not going to kill our own people. And, we're, and you're going to have to find some other way to stay in power. And from that point onward, essentially, Ben Ali's fate was sealed. He got on an airplane, flew off to Saudi Arabia. Same thing happens in Egypt. When the occupiers broke through the security cordon set up by police forces around Tahrir Square, uh, and occupied it, it would not have been difficult for the Egyptian military to clear Tahrir Square. It's a big open space. They could have dropped a couple bombs on it, killed 10, 20,000 people, cleared the streets, reestablished uh, state control, and put an end to the whole thing. And once again, the Egyptian military chose not to. And there's so much water under the bridge now. Everyone hates the Egyptian military now in Egypt. But at the time, this idea that the people in the army are one hand 
was extraordinarily powerful. I mean, I still remember how vivid that was. The United States played a key role here behind the scenes, uh, advising, urging, warning the Egyptian military at all levels not to open fire. This was going to be a key uh, criteria for a future relationship with them. And uh, because it was behind the scenes, we don't get much credit for it, but uh, this did happen. It was significant, and it was the crucial turning point. Once again, as soon as the army decided not to open, open fire in, uh, in, on Tahrir Square, Mubarak's fate was effectively sealed. It was tense. Uh, the 18 days of the Egyptian Revolution were among the most difficult and tense of my life. I, I was very actively involved in working with, with uh, the administration on trying to, uh, advising them on, on how to deal with this. Uh, it didn't seem inevitable at the time, but in retrospect, it probably was once the military made that choice. And generally across the region, um, up until that turning point I'm about to describe, that holds true. Um, up until the middle of March, you don't see military responses. You see the exercise of self-restraint across the region, and with one big exception, Libya. Five days after Mubarak falls, peaceful protesters in Libya are met with tanks, guns, and jets, and, and attack helicopters. And this in the context that I've just described of mass protest, nonviolence, and the unification of Arab political space combined with this, this powerful sense of momentum, that should give you a sense of how unbelievably shocking those images were in the context of February, February 16, 2011. That basically what we were looking at was two possible models. You could not shoot your people <laughs> if Gaddafi survives. That tells you something, right? You could choose to not kill your own people and lose. Or you can kill your own people and win. That's not a very good message to send the regimes of the region. And I believe, and I, I very strongly believe, that this was the timing of this was essential for explaining why the Arab world, the United States, the United Nations, NATO, very quickly converged around a forceful intervention uh, to prevent Gaddafi from winning. Uh, that, that if this had happened a year earlier or a year later, you wouldn't have seen anything like the same response from the United States, from NATO, or from the Arab League, because it was the timing and the context of the middle of February of 2011. Okay, those are the happy days, right? This is this unique, discrete period in Arab politics, which, as I've said, is the culmination of trends which have been developing over a decade, and which then took on these very unique characteristics of mass mobilization, integration of political space, shift of momentum, and uh, this sense of a unified march towards inevitable change. The Arab Spring, as I've, just, as I've just defined it, ends, I would say, in a span of a roughly 10 days. It, 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 it sounds better when I can say it ended in a single week, but it, it's more impressive, actually, if you expand it to include 10 days. And uh, I, in, in the book, uh, this is uh, chapter five, I think, uh, The Empire Strikes Back. You know, uh, my kids like this. They, they, they thought that, you know, the, the, the Arab Spring is like the new hope, right? Luke Skywalker, the Death Star blows up, everyone's happy. And then the Empire Strikes Back. And how does the Empire strike back? Well, in the span of 10 days, the following things happen. 
And I really want you to think about this is all happening in the span of 10 days. Uh, again, for my theorist friends, this is like Mark Beisinger's idea of like compressed time, of things happening so quickly that they build upon themselves. And it's very difficult for the actors on the ground to make sense of them in a discrete individual way. So I would say that the real turning point here, the, the kind of the overture, is probably uh, the King of Morocco giving an unprecedented speech where he goes and basically promises constitutional reforms. No one pays much attention because at that time, this is speech number one. You know, it's like, oh, the King of Morocco gave his first speech. He's doomed. But then, on March 11th, Saudi, uh, a group of uh, brave young Saudis called a, a protest on Facebook. And um, one poor deluded soul was stupid enough to show up. He disappeared into prison, and best of, to the best of my knowledge, has never been heard from again. Um, the king of Saudi Arabia then went on in an extremely unusual televised speech and basically um, buried his problems in money. He a $130 billion uh, regime buyout package, uh, which basically uh, was carefully targeted at potentially, um, at potentially discontented constituencies. And again, you know, it, it's good to be rich. You know, $130 billion can buy you a lot of goodwill. Not forever. This probably um, is unsustainable in the long term. The break-even price for regime survival in Saudi Arabia is now, I think, uh, according to Stefan Hertog of LSE, close to $90 a barrel for oil. So if, if oil dips below that, Saudi Arabia is in trouble. It used to be about $60 a barrel. Um, but in the short term, they survived. Their home front was now secure. Few days later, Saudi troops roll into Bahrain, which turns out, in my opinion, to be one of the great historic turning points of Arab politics, which people didn't really recognize at the time. I was actually in Doha, in Qatar at the time, and I was planning a trip uh, to Bahrain on March 15th. I never took it because the airport was closed and the troops had cleared the streets. Um, but what happens is the Saudis, Saudi tanks pour in and they basically clear the streets of Bahraini protesters and bulldoze Pearl Roundabout, which was the Bahraini equivalent of, um, of Tahrir Square. And to, get, to grasp the significance of this, you have to understand that a lot of people like to talk about there being this Gulf exceptionalism or monarchical exceptionalism. It's completely bogus. There's absolutely nothing to it. Um, in the Gulf, the six countries of the GCC, you had significant protest activity in Kuwait, where you had the largest protest in Kuwaiti history, which actually managed to drive the prime minister and leading member of the royal family out of office and probably denied him a chance to, to become the new, to succeed his, uh, the, the current emir. Um, in Oman, you had unprecedented levels of labor and activist mobilization. And in Bahrain, you had, at the height of the protest, more than half of the country's population in the streets protesting. That's major. The only places where you don't see protest activity are Saudi Arabia, as just described, and then you know, Qatar and the UAE, which don't really count because they're extremely rich and have very small populations. I do believe in very, very rich exceptionalism, uh, but not monarchical exceptionalism. Jordan and Morocco also both faced among the most effective and sustained uh, mobilizations and protest movements in the region. Um, so I just, uh, there's no, the monarchical exceptionalism doesn't work. But to get back to Bahrain, when the troops roll in, clear the streets, they then, the, the Bahraini regime then begins a comprehensive crackdown, which is probably the farthest reaching and most sweeping of any Arab country, which led to a wholesale campaign of arrests, not only of activists, but of anybody suspected of having any involvement in activism, heavily focused on the Shia community and with a very overt and heavy-handed sectarian edge. 
tenured university presses, uh, professors are fired, public servants are fired, private sector employees are fired, uh, students are expelled, uh, there's widespread torture, abuse, uh, all of it now fully documented in the report of the Bahrain Independent Commission of Inquiry. It's important because this was the first example of a fully-fledged protest movement being defeated. And it was defeated. Um, I don't think for the long term. I actually, for those of you who follow me on Twitter or, Facebook or, uh, or read my blog, know Bahrain is currently ranked number one on my hit list of, of, of regimes likely to face significant challenges in the coming year. And I, I don't hold great hopes for the Al Khalifas to be on the throne within five years. But they broke the momentum. They won and in the short term. Um, so Bahrain broke the momentum. Then, in that same week, a Ye Yemen had one of the largest, most sustained, and mo most robust of the protest movements. Government snipers opened fire on a protest in Sana'a University, killing over 50 people, ordinary students like you. Um, they gunned them down, killed them. It was all caught on tape. The Yemeni army splits. The 4th Armored Division defects under General Ali Mohsen, and Yemen changes from mobilized peaceful protesters against authoritarian regime to two armies facing off against each other with peaceful protesters camped in the middle. And basically what you see then is an armed standoff in Yemen which persists for months until finally uh, Ali Abdullah Saleh is, is persuaded to leave office. The authority of the state largely crumbles. There's a massive humanitarian crisis in Yemen. Uh, there's uh, hundreds of thousands of display, internally displaced. According, according to uh, the UN, there's uh, over a million people at risk of starvation. Uh, massive loss and degradation of state control over Yemen. But the key thing here is that once again, a very large and very kind of very core part of the Arab Spring was diverted in a radical different direction towards violence, bloodshed, and a standoff between armies. Still, in that same week, NATO jets begin bombing Libya. This was the same week. Again, that's why I'm trying to get you, give you a sense of how compressed this all is. And it's quite ironic that Saudi Arabia, the great champion of uh, humanitarian intervention in, in Libya, on the exact same day that the intervention began, invaded Bahrain to prevent peaceful mobilization there. Um, by the way, I still I was very much in favor of the intervention in Libya. I still am, and I think Libya is going to work out great um, over the long term. And I'm happy to talk about that in Q and A. But um, it's but it's also undeniable that instead of Al Jazeera showing images of happy protesters, now they're showing images of guys in pickup trucks and guns, dead bodies, and NATO jets bombing. A very different vibe, very different dynamic. Still, in that same week, you get the uh, the first major protests in Syria which are met with brutal force in the town of Daraa, and that begins the spiral of conflict in Syria, which has come to dominate our, the current policy agenda, which I'm not going to say much about in my talk, but I'm happy to discuss in, uh, in the Q&A. In that same window, in that same week, you see the, the, um, the, the lowest moment of the protest movement in Jordan. A group of protesters decided to set up camp outside of the Ministry of Interior in Amman. They were set upon by regime-backed thugs. A lot of people were hurt. Um, it was a really, really ugly scene. Um, and again, the bottom line is that this 
broke the momentum of the Jordanian protest movement. And again, if it had just been Jordan, it might not have mattered. But as part of this overall region-wide uh, shift, um, it mattered quite a bit. And then, as if that's not all enough, on March 19th, Egypt holds a referendum on a, on a constitutional amendment which basically lay out a pathway for a military-led transition. Um, and anybody who's been reading the newspapers know how well that's worked out. Um, you know, not so well. Um, but at the time, that wasn't what, that's not the key thing. The key thing at the time was that the activist community, the people who had led the protests in Tahrir Square, who at that time saw themselves as deeply invested with revolutionary legitimacy and saw themselves as the inheritors of the revolution, they saw this military-led transition as a trap and they campaigned against it with all force. They, they went at whole hog urging people to vote no. And then 83% of Egyptians voted yes on massive turnout of over 80%. And what this said was that in fact the activists were not going to be the inheritors of the revolution. They were very quickly alienated from the political transition. Many of them rapidly leave the organized realm of institutional politics and they then instead take a position outside of politics, protesting, disrupting, critiquing from the sidelines. But that key thing that I started off with when I was talking about the Arab Spring, how the activists formed a coalition with the masses, was broken. Now the activists and the masses part company. The unification of Arab political space fragments. Instead of there being this sense of a common Arab struggle, it breaks down in, once again into a series of discrete struggles. That sense of unity is lost. The momentum is broken. And with massive bloodshed in everywhere from Yemen to Bahrain to Syria to Libya, nonviolence is gone. And from that point forward, what that discrete, unique moment that I call the Arab Spring largely comes to an end. That does not mean, however, that the underlying structural forces have gone away. And here's where I think we have to be very careful about what inferences we draw. If you believe that the Arab Spring was this kind of unique flowering of things which you know, just came out of nowhere, then the story I've just told you would have to be profoundly depressing. But that's not actually the way that I see it. Because the way I see it is that this was one manifestation of a much deeper and broader structural change. The same forces which led to the increasing mobilization of the 2000s, the unification of the Arab public sphere through the, uh, the new media, um, the, the rise of a youth generation which was unwilling to accept the, the, the authoritarian control of, of Arab regimes, those things have only just begun. I think we've only started to see the, ver the many ways in which this new structure is going to play itself out. And in the book, in the last chapter of the book, I lay out a, a number of hypotheses about where I see this going, how it's going to affect uh, American power, how it's going to affect political Islam, how it's going to affect regional power dynamics, how we might be going back to something like uh, the, the struggle for Syria in the Arab Cold War of the 1950s. Um, there's a lot of different manifestations of this, but the key thing that I want to, I, I think, close with, because I think I was told I was supposed to end at 10 of, 10 of 1, is simply that 
if you look at it from this broader structural perspective that I've been offering, then you're going to come away perhaps less depressed because, you know, to, to finish with my Star Wars thing, you know, we don't know yet whether, you know, the Empire Strikes Back is followed by Revenge of the Sith or Return of the Jedi, right? You know, it could end badly or it could end well. We don't really know yet. We've got a long way to go on this. Now, I was going to say, I, I am going to stop, I, I was going to say a bit more about uh, some of these big questions like Syria, uh, Islamist movements, uh, what it means for the United States, what it means for Israel, but hopefully people will ask uh, about those things and, um, and I can take those up in Q&A. So let me stop there. Take your own question. Okay. Uh, sir. so much for your phenomenological analysis. Um, I, of course, agree with um, most of the things you've said, uh, but I'm not satisfied with, um, I mean, I would, I would, I would need uh, a deeper analysis telling, trying to find out reasons. So uh, we, can, we can talk about it the whole afternoon, but we don't have the time. And why, could you please explain the behavior of the military in Tunisia mm -hmm. and Egypt? So why did they behave in that way? So Although they were able to, to do it differently, as you, yeah. as you said. And my second and for now, last question is, so how about the factor of religion? And you mentioned uh, how successful Saudi Arabia was in killing the uprising in Bahrain, uh, where uh, while this did not happen in other countries. And here there is, there is a moment of religious mm -hmm. influence which remained unmentioned in your wonderful book. Thanks. Those are great questions. Um, on the militaries, um, I would say there's a couple of different ways you can answer that. One would be to, it looking strictly inside the composition of those militaries. One thing which Tunisia and Egypt had in common was a highly professionalized uh, military, and one which was not uh, designed as kind of the, the, as I said before, a Praetorian guard for uh, minority regimes. So in places like uh, like Syria or Yemen or uh, a lot of a lot of the other Arab countries, Jordan, I would put in this category. The militaries were designed primarily for, uh, for coup proofing to basically uh, ensure the domination and control by the immediate family of the leader who often came from an uh, ethnic or sectarian minority. And in a sense, they were not going to abandon the regime because they were the regime. They, they, there was no divide between the regime and the leadership. And in both Egypt and Tunisia, you had, you had much more professional militaries, you had more of a corporate identity, and one where they could see themselves as the guardian of the state without being the guardian of the regime. In the specific case of Tunisia, um, I, I think you would, you would look at, uh, I, that, that's really the answer. You had a very small professional military, very different from most other Arab countries. Um, in the case of Egypt, I think the calculations were a bit more complicated. On the one hand, the Egyptian military was not all that happy with the Mubaraks. Um, in fact, uh, they were quite resistant to Hosni Mubarak's plan to have his son succeed him. Gamal was, uh, had no military experience. He was the personification of this uh, 
well, what many people believed was an extremely corrupt, uh, nepotistic, uh, uh, comprador, capitalist elite um, who threatened the military's supremacy. They had no control over him. They didn't like him. They wanted him gone. Um, the, one of the top generals of the staff, um, this was uh, some, one of those kind of semi-amusing moments, um, told a private audience in Washington that we were always against uh, Gamal. Go back and read your WikiLeaks. And uh, it's actually true. There is a, a WikiLeak which describes military discontent uh, with Gamal's succession. Um, that, so that, I would say that is a second factor. A third factor was, I think, the American pressure. And the American, I mean, the, people don't really know, but uh, you know, Bob Gates was on the phone with uh, Tantawi, I think, six times during the crisis. And then up and down the ranks, uh, there's a very large number of Egyptian officers have trained in the United States uh, through IMET programs and uh, through various kinds of professional exchanges and the like. And so basically, there was a lot of points of contact along the way for us to call over there and say, don't do it. Don't open fire. We want to work with you. We want to help you. When you're dealing with uh, armies that are not American allies, you don't have any of those points of access. You are, we're going to call the Syrian military and tell them, not, I mean, we have no points of contact, no points of access. Well, you can try. So, so I, I think that's a big point. Um, okay, on the question of religion, I would take that in two, it's an excellent question. I would take it in two different directions, and I suspect other people might have more uh, specific questions here, so I'm only going to very briefly touch on each. The first is the sectarian dimension, which is specific to Bahrain and to the Gulf, where I think one of the survival strategies by Gulf regimes was to highlight uh, sectarianism, to basically take, for example, the Bahraini protesters who were cross-sectarian, they emerged out of an extremely robust uh, human rights and democracy movement, which had been act which had been active for over a decade, and which took enormous pains to not have a sectarian identity. And they washed it away overnight by labeling them as a basically Iranian-backed uh, Shia uh, saboteurs. And that sectarian rhetoric uh, took hold very quickly. It fell on fertile ground. You know how deep sectarianism uh, spread over the last decade, especially after, uh, after Iraq. And um, so sectarianism spread, I think, quite powerfully um, as a survival strategy on the part of the, uh, for the Gulf regimes. As for kind of Islamism um, and kind of Islamist movement, I think that we have to separate two different things: the uh, kind of the activist communities which spark the revolutions and the and the movements which do well after the revolutions. Uh, Islamist movements did not play a major role in the outbreak of the revolutions in Tunisia or Egypt or most of these other countries. They often played a role like within coalitions. Like for, for example, in Yemen, the Islah, which is Yemeni Muslim Brotherhood, um, they were there present, part of the student movement and, and, the, and the, uh, the opposition from the beginning, but they weren't really leading it. Uh, the Muslim Brotherhood joined Tahrir after a few days, but they didn't plan it uh, in Egypt. And, and, and so forth. Um, this, they, but where they became important was after the revolutions when political space was opened up, uh, it should have surprised nobody that <coughs> groups like the Muslim Brotherhood were well placed to do well in elections when they were, you know, they spent the last 30 years transforming Egyptian public culture in a more conservative direction. They're the best organized, best financed, most politically experienced movement in the country. Um, you know, they were exceptionally well placed to take advantage of a transition to democracy, even though they didn't spark the initial uprising. And I, I could probably I could tell similar stories uh, about other parts of the region if people are interested. Sir? Uh, yeah, I, you mentioned the mass media and uh, 
mentioned the, the, the impetus of this movement. And what would you have to say about global civil society's role? Mm -hmm. Because international governments constrained <coughs> the Egyptian military. Did uh, global civil society play a role? And how did the mass media help this contagion process after Tunisia? That is a really interesting question. That's one I haven't gotten before. Um, I mean, I work in no, it's, it's fascinating because on the one hand, many of the, the activists themselves are highly resistant to any narrative which places kind of the, the broader global activist network at its core. I mean, if you want, you want to piss off an Egyptian activist, just mention the name Gene Sharp. Um, you know, because this idea that they learned their nonviolent strategies from this Western uh, theorist is just it's offensive to them because they see this as an indigenous, authentic movement. That said, there was a great deal of support uh, from, you know, from democracy, human rights uh, movements, um, whether you're talking about like, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty, trying to hold these governments to account. There was also a great deal of interaction between activist networks in, in the previous year, you know, let's say the last five years before the revolutions. You know, the, many of the activists that played a key role in various countries um, I knew them because I would see them at trainings. I would see them at international conferences. They would, uh, they would come and they would interact with, you know, with, with Serbian uh, you know, activists or with European activists and that sort of thing. So there was a lot of that in the background. I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe it even as a trigger, but as a background condition, I think it was very much there. And then when the revolutions began to break out, and here's where I think the nonviolence and the presence of a cohort of English-speaking wired activists really made a difference, is that they framed it in such a way that these revolutions were highly attractive to international audiences. And they were actually very careful in their image management um, and, uh, and trying to frame their own struggle in ways that resonated with global norms. Uh, and this was, again, I wouldn't say this was deceptive, I don't think this was deceitful or deceptive, but it, I think it was strategic. And so there, I think there's... Yeah, I, I mean, basically, if, um, you know, so you know, Tom Friedman walks through Tahrir Square, and, or he looks at pictures and doesn't see any signs bashing Israel, and he assumes that the Egyptian revolution has no foreign policy goals. Well, that's ridiculous. I mean, one of the big things which Egyptians held against Hosni Mubarak was his alliance with Israel, the blockade of Gaza, and the general sense that Egyptian foreign policy was not in tune with the preferences of the Egyptian people. But the organizers and the activists in Tahrir understood that if their movement was seen as anti-Israeli, it would have a much more difficult time commanding international support. So they would do the best they could to make sure that those signs were kept off camera. Well, you, you, you see what I mean? Could you say that what happened in the Arab Spring was not possible 10 years ago? Yes. But because of these structural constraints, not because But I, I would say that it was not possible in the sense that um, some of the underlying structural conditions weren't there. The media, uh, the, the, the unifying force of the media, the, um, the, the, the new media and all that sort of stuff. Um, I think those things are genuinely new. Um, yeah. I mean, I think that you, it couldn't have happened 10 years ago. But at the same time, I, I think one of the main things I've been trying to emphasize in the talk is that it didn't start from nowhere, though. That basically, this was a long, simmering uh, uh, process. That's sort of what yeah. I'm, I'm trying to get at. You had the, the, yeah. the background for it, but the facilitating factors just yeah. weren't there 10 years ago. Yeah, it's not like a rupture. It's more of like a, people always, you know, so let's put it this way. 
you talk these activists, you know, they've been protesting and doing all this stuff for the last decade, and they always failed. I mean, this, this, was, this was the thing about them. They kept organizing protests, and they kept losing. And you talk to them in 2009, 2010, this was a dispirited, beaten bunch. Like, we try everything, and nothing works. But you think about what does it mean to say that they failed? So one way to look at it would be that uh, there's like a, a dam or like a breakwater or something. And the tide keeps coming in, right? It keeps getting higher with every, you know, with every iteration. The tide gets higher and higher. And each time, it fails to knock over the dam. It's failed. What a stupid tide. Why does it keep trying? It always fails. And then suddenly, it overwhelms the dam and everything collapses. And people say, well, we didn't see that coming. Well, you didn't see it coming because you weren't paying attention to the importance of that structural shift of the steadily rising tide and the way that this was, kind of the underlying factors which, which explain why it kept rising. So I, that, I guess that's how I would, I would try and put that together. Mm -hmm. um, I, know, I know you didn't get to talk much about the Israeli conflict, but um, you explained like, during 10 days how the Arab Spring stopped. I was wondering if you could explain then like, why we still see sustained political opposition in Syria, why we see organized right. protest movements, you have local coordinating committees, you have like, revolutionary councils throughout Syria, and they continue with this fight all the time. No, absolutely. And that, that's exactly the point that I was trying to make in the talk and, and also in my answer here, which is to say that those structural factors haven't gone away. The, uh, the, the underlying technolo technological factors, the, the, uh, the opposition to uh, authoritarian rule, the, uh, the, the repertoires of contention which have evolved, those haven't gone away. What ends in March is those, those unique discrete factors, the unification of the arena, the sense of inevitability, you know, that sort of thing. But the sorts of things that you're talking about are exactly why I think that we're only at the beginning of the process, not at the end of the process. That basically what I would expect now is exactly, as, I, you know, as in my answer to you, is, is very much about, okay, they go back, they lick their wounds, they learn their lessons, and they try again from a different direction. The thing about Syria, though, is that you know, in many ways, Syria doesn't fit the model. And this is, in many ways, this is one of the... Um, perverse consequences of that framing of this as a single unified Arab uprising because Syria actually never really looked like that. And yet we were so heavily conditioned to see things that way that we kind of put the Arab Spring template onto something which maybe wasn't. Uh, I actually think, and one of the things I, write, I say in, in this chapter in the book, is that this was, a, in, in my opinion at least, this was a pretty strong case of, of, of the regime bringing it on himself. That basically, if Bashar al-Assad had simply refrained from killing his own people and offered up some token modest reforms early on, I don't think any of this would have happened. Um, but what happened was he saw what happened in Libya and he was spooked. And he's like, I'm not going to let that happen to me. I'm going to crush this at the first sign of dissent. But if you go back and you look at what Syria looked like in March of 2011, the pr initial protests were extremely small. In out in Darada, it was tiny, it was discreet. It could have been dealt with at the local level. But when he sends in the troops, kills a bunch of people, um, this shocks people. There's a certain level of like moral shock and moral outrage there that this shouldn't be happening. Plus, it then intersects with, uh, with tribes and family and neighborhoods kind of flipping you know, one by one as, uh, you know, as they seek revenge for people who've been killed in ways that were, that were viewed as illegitimate. And then, as the space is opened, there's an extremely elaborate and effective information campaign to try and create the impression of large-scale mobilization in Syria, which at that time didn't really exist. And so you get this very interesting combination of 
expectations of the international community, the expectations of the Syrian regime, um, both, I think, having an exaggerated reading of what's going on, overreacting, and then generating a self-fulfilling prophecy. As Assad cracks down hard, more and more people flip against him, and pretty soon, it's real. And um, so, so Syria is a really interesting, it, it, it's actually one of the cases that doesn't fit uh, uh, very well. And if you go back and you read Bashar's interview with the Wall Street Journal just like a month before um, everything goes to hell in Syria, you don't get a sense of a leader who thinks that he's on the brink of facing sustained uh, mobilization. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned that the, uh, the timing and the context of the Libyan uprising was such that it, it uh, was the impetus for international intervention. Mm -hmm. similar to that in terms of the sense that um, the leaders are willing to use military force to suppress the rebellion is, is Syria with al-Assad. Mm -hmm. um, what about that case with Syria uh, that differs from Libya in that it doesn't it, or hasn't to this point justified international intervention whereas Libya did? I think that it's a combination of kind of intrinsic differences between Syria and Libya and then the timing. I mean I think that uh, in a sense Libya and what happened in Libya uh, basically is one of the obstacles to similar action in Syria, uh, both because of this, at the Security Council, you know, Russia is not going to allow, you know, the, the Libya thing to happen again. And I think that um, they probably wouldn't have anyway, given uh, their interest in Syria. But, um, but clearly there's a sense the time isn't right. Libya, you know, it, in some ways now we think, oh, that was easy. You know, we, we, we managed to have relative success, billion dollars, no American lives lost. And we go back, it wasn't easy you know, at the time, you know, and working the way through it. And so the idea, for example, that uh, just a few NATO bombs and the regime will crumble, well, you know, people, a lot of people believed that in March of 2011. And then when they hear people saying the same thing about Syria, they say, wait a minute. Everybody said that about Libya, and it didn't work out that way. So I think that's part of it. Then there's the intrinsic difference between Syria and Libya. I mean, for one thing, Syria is just in a much more strategically vital uh, uh, part of the world. Uh, you know, it's right there in between Israel and Iran and Iraq and Turkey and Lebanon. And so the stakes are a lot higher of, thing, of things going wrong, refugee flows, uh, the war spilling over, opportunities for Syria to make mischief. Syria is, really is deeply ethnically divided. And there's a real, I think, the Iraq uh, memory really hangs over this heavily that uh, you know if you break the state you might not end up with happy democracy you might end up with another Iraq collapse in sectarian civil war the, the Libyan opposition was much better organized much more effective uh, they controlled territory they uh, developed a pretty impressive uh, uh, political leadership in exile and at home which was able to make their case effectively um, and then the nature of the conflict itself was such where since the Libyans held territory, you could actually police that with air power. You could protect Benghazi and the eastern sector with air power. And then, as opposed to Syria, where what you're looking at is a lot of this intense urban fighting uh, where the killing is happening inside of cities and uh, you have very, very little human intelligence. You know, the, the air power is much less useful in that kind of situation. So and I think that there's a whole bunch of reasons why Syria doesn't look like Libya, but those are probably the big ones. Um, Mm -hmm. um, I have a question regarding, um, at the beginning of your talk, you said that you wouldn't qualify the events um, that have occurred during the Arab Spring as revolutions, right. with the exception of Tunisia. And I don't mean to split hairs over some 
methods, but why would you not qualify them as um, revolutions? And right. what makes sort of for the Haitian exceptionalism of it, um, how the revolution is playing out there and how? is just awesome. I love Tunisia. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the Tunisians are great. I mean, in a sense, the Tunisians had the luxury of being marginal in, in a way. I mean, I, I think marginality actually helps. I mean, there's the sense that we need to pay attention to and help these countries, but in a sense, our help might make things worse. Um, Tunisia developing on its own on, on the margins probably helps a bit. I think in Tunisia, you actually have, you have a chance for a real revolution. Um, I think that in many ways, they've gotten most of the big things right. They, have a ra they had a rational transition sequence um, where with the, the way they did the elections to constituent assembly, a constitution drafting process followed by new elections. Um, the military actually remained politically neutral, and they've managed in large measure to keep the institutions of the state neutral. Um, the Islamist movement, Anahda, uh, has behaved in a surprisingly responsible way. They have not sought to dominate the constituent assembly. They have bent over backwards to try and reassure uh, secularists and leftists. And so in a sense, what you see in Tunisia, despite the fact that the economy is still a disaster, tourism still hasn't picked up, there's, I mean, don't get me wrong, Tunisia's got a lot of problems. But in a sense, they got the big things right. And I'm very optimistic about Tunisia. In Egypt, on the other hand, you know, you've got basically the political chaos of the transition. And so maybe it'll end up being a revolution. Maybe it won't. People are sharply divided about that. Libya actually has the most revolutionary outcome in the sense that you end up with a fundamentally new political order, completely new state institutions. Tunisia's more revolutionary in outcome terms than Tunisia. But I think the process by which they get there through civil war and international intervention isn't at, it, that that doesn't quite it's not doesn't quite capture the revolutionary process in the same way. Every place else in the region, you've had um, mobilization, but not fundamental political change. Even in so Yemen, you've seen Ali, Ali Abdul Assad is gone, but the state is largely as it ever was, and um, and then everywhere else, you know, you've got you know like places place like Morocco where you have essentially kind of marginal token constitutional reforms to keep the king in power. There hasn't been, that's what I mean when I say there hasn't been revolutions anywhere. So uprisings, mass mobilization, yes, but with the exception of Tunisia and Libya, uh, with the differences I've just described, you don't really see revolutionary outcomes yet. It doesn't mean that they won't happen, but that's kind of where we are right now. Mm -hmm. In Tunisia? Well, it's an interesting question. Um, the, the Salafis in Tunisia haven't mobilized for politics in the same way that they have in Egypt. And um, that actually has been, I think, very helpful for Anehta, for, the, for the, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood Party in Tunisia. Because, in a sense, Anehta has been able to do what I thought the Muslim Brotherhood would do, which is basically take the Islamic vote for granted and try and reassure the center. And they've been able to do that because they haven't faced a serious challenge from their right flank. Whereas in Egypt, the rise of the Salafi movement has meant that the Muslim Brotherhood has been simultaneously trying to reassure the center while also fighting off a very serious political challenge from the right flank, which means that their messaging has been all over the place. They've been undisciplined, um, and, they, and they haven't been able to, uh, to have that kind of uh, uh, political strategy, which, which I had expected. And, um, and, and the Salafis, I, I, ha, I, ha, I have to add this, you know, the Salafis in Egypt, their political success really did surprise everyone. 
And this was, and I, when I say everyone, I don't just mean like us clueless Western uh, academics. I was in, uh, I was in the office of the leader of the of Hezbollah Noor, which is the largest Egyptian Salafi party uh, in Alexandria in the end of July uh, of la of last year. And so this was, you know, less than half a year before the actual election. And he told me that uh, they were hoping, they, they, no guarantees, they, they didn't really know what to expect, they were hoping that they might be able to win five or six parliamentary seats. And they'd be happy with that. It would be beyond their, their wildest dreams. And they ended up with 111. So it's not just us that didn't see it coming, they didn't even see it coming themselves. And I think that's, that's significant. Egyptian non-Sadafi, like Egyptian secularists and liberals, and the, the Ikhwan, the Muslim Brotherhood themselves, shocked by this. Just shocked and scared. Secularists, because they don't really like the idea of Salafis coming in and you know, banning alcohol and you know, imposing dress codes and that sort of thing. Mainstream Egyptians often look at the Salafis and see them as these, this kind of crazy lunatic fringe. And the Muslim Brothers were terrified because they now see a challenge for the Islamic vote. And there's a long bad blood between the Muslim Brothers and the Salafis, which you're seeing right now when the Salafis en masse have decided to endorse the most liberal Islamist candidate for president and snubbing the Muslim Brotherhood's candidate for president, who's a much more conservative uh, kind of Islamist. And so you, you see that really playing out. Um, but the Salafis themselves may have already hit their high water mark because, in a sense, they, you know, they, they, they did so well in the elections, but now already you're starting to see their own constituents getting disgusted with the compromises they have to make in power. And I just keep asking them, you know, what are you going to do the first time you're a member of a government and that government needs to negotiate an IMF loan that charges interest? God specifically says in the Quran that you cannot have interest. There's no fudging this. This isn't a matter of interpretation. And their answer to that is usually, oh, that won't happen. Okay. <laughs> Sir? I was wondering, I know it's not an Arab country, but I was wondering if you would be able to fit uh, Iran and its social protest movement after the most recent election into this wider story that you're, you're telling. I think similar structural forces are in play, except for the identity component. I mean, there's a, and so along with some of like the left-wing activists, you would get this sense of this whole, everything happening in the world is part of the same process. Occupy Wall Street, Greece, London, it's all part of the same thing. But really it wasn't. There's a pretty clear uh, demarcation between them and, and the way most Arabs talk about it. Arabs look at Greece and they see them. They don't see us. Iran's a tough case. Because in the case of Iran, it's very clearly on the outside of that identity narrative. It's not Arabic, and it's presented as something happening on the outside of the, of the Arab community, but it's obviously closer. I would say that the major effect of it was that the, the, the protests and the green movement and the crackdown and everything in 2009 were heavily covered on Al Jazeera and on the Arab media. In large part because, uh, especially the Saudi media, they hate Iran, they want to highlight instability and challenge and that sort of thing. What that meant was that everybody in this kind of Arab public sphere was well aware of what had happened in 2009. When the Egyptian revolution is breaking out and Ali Khamenei comes on and tries to claim this as an Islamic awakening, uh, that this is you know, all to the benefit of Iran, we are leading this challenge to the American status quo, is laughed off the stage. Because people say, wait a minute, you already had this and we saw what you did to it. And there's this very clear, visceral rejection of the Islamic Republic on those grounds. You are not us. 
you are them. And in the kind of good guy, the very simplistic good guys, bad guys narrative, the people against the regimes, in this very real and kind of unexpected sense, the Iranians were identified as, as them, as the regimes, which would just, the Saudis just couldn't believe. Mm -hmm. I've heard that before, and uh, it clearly is significant, although I've generally been less convinced by it than other people. I mean, so basically, the Russians, you know, every time I go to New York and talk to Security Council diplomats, the Russians won't shut up about this. And yet, I just simply do not believe that they would have behaved differently um, in the absence of Libya, because they already had that alliance with Syria, and they would have defended Syria anyway. It strikes me more as an excuse than an explanation. I do think, though, that in terms of kind of the broader non-aligned movement, if you want to call it that, you know, kind of, but the non-aligned countries, I think there is this sense of kind of creeping R2Pism. And uh, I think you're right. But I, I see that as a relatively minor point in all of this. Because one thing which really strikes me about Syria is that, yes, you had Russia, excuse me, Russia and China uh, vetoing in the Security Council. But in the General Assembly, you had almost unanimous uh, condemnation of, of, of Syrian regime atrocities. The Human Rights Council has managed to maintain, has managed to muster very impressive majorities in favor of such condemnations. Um, within the Arab world, though, I think that we underestimate at our own, at our own danger the legacies and the potency of, of the latent anti-American and uh, anti-Western discourse. In Syria, Groups, the constituencies that continue to support the Assad regime, they consume a steady diet of media, narratives, and propaganda, which supports their reading of this as uh, an American Qatari Saudi Zionist plot to undermine the last steadfast uh, a barrier to, uh, to their domination. And we, 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 listen, we, we hear this and we laugh and we say, oh, they must be dumb. No, they, this is very resonant with their understanding of the nature of regional politics. And um, so I think there's this sense, if, people, if, people, if we could just get them to see the truth, then they change. But in fact, they think they see the truth. And we don't. And I think we should stop there. Thank sorry. All. all right, well, thank you all. Remind everybody because this has been such a wonderful talk, really a star performance. Um, that uh, Mark has a blog of his own. It's for, it's at foreignpolicy.com. Lynch. Lynch.foreignpolicy.com. Lynch.foreignpolicy.com. It's really a terrific blog, and you can follow the development of his ideas and, and his activities as well on that blog. Thank you. Two, two other things. I'm, I'm at Abu Ardvark on Twitter, and um, please buy my book. <laughs> and I'll sign it. Yeah.